Let's turn to God's Word tonight, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be reading from verse 30 to verse 37. Mark 9, 30 through 37, as we continue our series on Mark's Gospel. Hear then God's breathed out word to us tonight. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious day that you've given us, for the beauty of sunshine and the promise of spring. We pray that you will be with Pastor Bob this evening, that you will give him the message that we need to hear, that you will open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts, that we may hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Three main points this evening. First of all, Jesus' servanthood. Secondly, the disciples' argument. Thirdly, Jesus' teaching. And then we'll follow that up with three questions of application as far as our response to God's word this evening then as well. First of all, Jesus' servanthood, which we read in verses 30, 31, and 32. Three points about that as we have covered this before in a variety of ways mark continues to draw our attention back to these statements of jesus and what he says about his suffering and what he says about his death first of all i'll have you note that he's not seeking a crowd they went on from there and passed through galilee and he did not want anyone to know He is going to go on to talk about his death. He's going to go on to talk about his suffering. One would think that at this point in time in the life of Jesus, you'd want a crowd. You'd want a big support system. You'd want a huge entourage. You'd want all sorts of people there to to be able to, to provide comfort and to provide help, to provide assistance. Perhaps to provide some sort of army that 
sort of stalls or hesitates this suffering and dying. But you see, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. It's Mark who told us that as well. He's not here for the crowd. He's not here for the popularity. He's not here for the notoriety. He's here to do a work. He's here to accomplish a mission. Not unlike ourselves, for we also are not here for the crowd. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here for the applause of men. We are here for the glory of God. Jesus' servanthood is seen in the fact that he is not trying to draw a crowd even at this point and even at this stage of his life. Secondly, he's very direct, isn't he? You, you read these words, and he directly tells us, this is it. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. There is a starkness in terms of the directness with which Jesus states this. There's no cuddling it. There's no romancing it. There, there's no trying to make this sound nice. It hits us. It hits us straight between the eyes. And it's blunt. He is very direct. You say, well, why do you mention that? Because there is no doubt Jesus knows what is about to take place. There is no mystery in this. It's not like when he's hanging on the cross, there is for a moment, for a single sec sec second, that Jesus is thinking, this isn't quite the way I planned it. This isn't quite the way I thought it would turn out. He knows exactly what is going to happen. He knows exactly who's going to speak. He knows exactly what is going to be said. He knows exactly how many blows he is going to receive. He knows exactly how many points of that crown of thorns are going to press themselves into his head. He knows exactly how many hammer blows it's going to take to put the nails in. He knows the exact moment and time in which the sword is going to pierce his side. He knows the moment when darkness is going to come. He knows when death will come occur. There is a directness here. He is a servant who knows exactly what he's getting himself into. He knows exactly he needs to lose his life. The third thing to note is the fact that he is not unclear. Except we read verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. <laughs> and we're kind of like, they did not understand. How do you not understand the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will arise. What is hard to understand about that? The answer is nothing. He is not unclear. There's not somehow or another this is such an analogy or such a picture or such a foreshadowing that, that you're left with, I don't get it. They don't understand. The question is why? Why do the disciples not get it? 
Let me ask you, first of all, do you think it's the fault of the messenger? Do you think the reason the disciples don't get it is because of the messenger? Boy, if only somebody else had said those words. If somebody else had just phrased it just a little bit differently, maybe the disciples would have got it. Well, I would hope that your initial reaction was, of course not. This is Jesus. How, how do you not get it right if you're Jesus? How do you get it wrong? How could you have a more perfect teacher? How could you have a more perfect mediator? How could you have one who could more perfectly state that which needs to be stated directly about his servanthood? So if you'll agree that it's not the fault of the messenger, then the question is, my second question would be, is it the fault of the message? Is this the wrong message? Did Jesus just use the wrong method? Maybe Jesus should have put up some balloons and had people read it. Maybe there should have been an airplane with a banner. I know, the whole problem is he didn't serve lattes with it. If he only had served lattes and let them come in their jeans, they would have sat down and they would, oh, we get it now. Oh, it must be the creamer we got going in our latte. Boy, that, that's just so smooth. Now I get the message, Jesus. No, it's not the fault of the message either, is it? It's not the fault of the messenger, and it's not the fault of the message. The message is clear. The message is true. These are words from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No clearer, no more beautiful, no more direct statement about the servanthood of Jesus could have been made. But they do not understand. Why? Because their hearts are not open. They are still blind to the truth. You say, but I get it. Yes. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes so that you have eyes to see the Holy Spirit has opened your ears so you have ears to hear. The Holy Spirit has wrenched your heart apart so that your heart can receive God's truth. You say, well, what, what, what major point are you trying to make here, Pastor Bob? The major point is this. It's not your fault, and it's not the fault of the message when you've tried to convey the gospel to someone and they don't believe. They didn't believe Jesus either. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. If they don't understand the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, 
they're the ones to blame. Not the messenger and not the message. See, we live in a day and age in a society in which, you know, evangelism, we, we've got to cue the message to the people and we've got to change the message for all these various groups. And, and you know, we just can't say. He's going to go to Jerusalem and in three days he's going to die. And then on the third day he's going to rise again. That's what happens to Jesus Christ. He's obedient unto death. Oh, no, other people might not get that. Well, I don't care what method you use. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open an individual's heart, they're not going to get the message. Subpoint: Don't stop trying. How many times does Jesus do this? He doesn't stop. He doesn't go, oh, they don't get it. I'm not doing this one again. Oh, they don't get it. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to do it. How many of us, though, when we, when we talk to somebody about Christ, oh, they didn't get it the first time. We're going to quit. Man, that didn't go anywhere. I'm not going to do that again. I tried that once when I was 21, and yeah, I'm 55 now. I've never tried it again. It's not you. You're not going to open their hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can open the heart. As of yet, these disciples do not have the Holy Spirit. And they don't understand the clear teaching of Jesus' servanthood. So unclear are they... <coughs> So do they lack understanding. Look what happens next, second point. They get into an argument. He's just told them about what's going to happen to them, to him. And they're arguing. You get the feeling Jesus is probably somewhat ahead. They're kind of tailing behind a little bit. And there's an argument going on. And we know what the argument is. They're arguing about, verse 34, who was the greatest. Note, how insensitive could they be? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. Who's going to be the greatest? They're not at all concerned at all about what Jesus said. Regardless if they get the whole scope and meaning of it, they must at least understand the core. He's going to die. Yeah, when he dies, who's going to be the greatest then? What an insensitive conversation is taking place in this argument amongst the disciples. How prideful. You know what the word greatest actually comes back to? It's the word mega. Right? Who is the mega? Who's the mega? Who's the one who is magnified? Who is the one who is blown up larger than proportions? Who is that going to be? Which one of us? See, it's almost like they did comprehend something. He's going to die. 
Well, somebody's got to take charge of this entourage then. I wonder who it's going to be. Which one of us is the most qualified to be the greatest, to be the magnet? To be the great one. Which one of us is the most important in the kingdom? And without giving everything away, probably Peter, James, and John are kind of going, these guys don't know nothing. We were just up on the mountain with them. We just saw Christ transfigured. It's got to be one of us. We got to be the ones. Man, we were handpicked, hand chosen. But they can't. They, they were under the vow not to say anything about it, so they're probably chomping a little bit at the bit, going, we got reasons, we got reasons. It's Peter, James, or I. The thun sons of thunder are probably bellowing quite loudly. Who is going to get the greatest honor? Who's going to get to wear the big jewelry? Who's going to get to wear the crown? Who's going to be the head honcho? Who's going to be the big cheese? Who's going to be in charge and get to order everybody around? This is their argument. They're walking. Jesus just told them, I'm going to die. And they're concerned about themselves and their place and their position. And how great they will be. It's not only insensitive, it's not only prideful, it ended up being quite embarrassing, didn't it? Note what happens. Right? Jesus lets the argument go on until they get to Capernaum, verse 33. And when he's in the house, he asks him, So what were you talking about back there on the road? What was the discussion? Now, once again, does Jesus not know? Of course Jesus knows. He is omniscient. He knows exactly what the discussion was. The question is not meant to inform Jesus the question is meant for them to be introspective. Notice their response. They were silent. Why do you suppose they don't say something? Why do you suppose one of them who thought themselves the greatest, I mean, they all are involved in this, so you would think one of them would have stepped forward and said, well, Jesus, I, I consider myself to be the greatest of these, so I'll be the spokesperson and I'll tell you what the discussion was about. Silence. Well, how come number two guy, okay, if he thinks he's number one, when number one guy is silent, why doesn't he step it up and say, well, hey, here's the perfect opportunity for me to show I'm really the important one here. I'll answer you, Jesus. There is silence. Why? Because they are embarrassed. They've been caught red-handed. His question so penetrates their hearts and minds 
that they put it in the perspective of that which Jesus had just taught about his own death. And they realize how embarrassing it is. That this discussion was even had. But Jesus is not finished. He's not about to just let silence rule the day. He's not about to just walk away from this and say, well, okay, I think you guys figured it out. No, he's going to push the point home. So we pick it up at verses 35, 36, and 37. Let me read them again. They kept silent. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So let's first of all take those words. First thing Jesus does, set them down. Okay, you 12, you guys who are arguing on the road, let me address this. If you really want to be first, here's how it occurs. You must be last of all. The person who thinks himself least, not the person who thinks himself the greatest. See, Jesus is taking the argument the opposite way. They argued who is the greatest. Jesus is saying the argument should have been who is the least. If you really want to be considered the first, you need to be considered the least. You must be last of all. And not only is that sufficient, you must be willing to be the servant of all. See, you can but imagine how this went, right? You got 12 guys, so you, you, you could probably, they're all probably arranging, all 12 of them in some sort of order, right? So who's number one on the list? Let's just say, Peter is putting forth the list. Peter probably thinks he's number one. Maybe then James and John, because they were with him on the mountain. And then maybe Matthew, and maybe uh, his brother Andrew, and a few others, and so on. And, and then finally, down at the bottom, you probably got somebody. My guess is they didn't pick Judas. We, we would probably suspect that. They probably didn't, because Judas is the guy who keeps the purse. He's the treasurer. Uh, they thought a lot of him. They, they, he was given a pretty important position. So he's probably not on the bottom of the rung. Maybe Simon the Zealot gets down there or something like that. Okay, Somebody we, we don't know a whole lot about, barely ever read their name. Uh, so so he's, he's down there. But you see, number 11, the guy who's number 11, at least has number 12 to serve him, right? He's at least got somebody below him. Let me apply it in a different sense, okay? Just so you kind of catch, if you didn't catch the, the, what's going on. Remember when you used to pick teams for softball at recess, okay? And you had a bat, and you did the thing with the hands 
to figure out who gets on whose team, right? And you know the person who's always last, don't you? <laughs> the person nobody wanted on the team. It's the way it works, right? We all know it. So did the person who was always last. Let's pick sides. How did it always work? Right? Everybody always knows it. But at least if you were second to last, you could say, at least I wasn't last. There was somebody else below me. Jesus is completely reversing that thinking. He's turning it completely the other way around and saying the last one <coughs> is really the first one if the last one is truly the servant, the water boy of all. That person is first. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, Kent Hughes remarks, first of all, in regards to these words, how countercultural they were. Their day is not unlike our day. They argued about who got to sit next to who at banquets. Right? We still argue about that. Right? Who gets to sit, ne sit next to who at banquets? Hannah and Vince are getting married. There's probably, you know, we've we got to follow the protocol. Who sits next to Vince? Who sits next to Hannah? Who's next to them? Who's next to them? Okay, we, we still, and, and you'll still find at weddings, there's tizzy fights going on all over the place. Well, I should have been sitting there. I should have been sitting there. I don't know why I didn't get to sit there. After all, I was this, and she asked me first. Oh, we still argue about where we sit at banquets. Go to a political rally. They still argue who sits and who gets to speak. Who's the first guy who gets to speak when there's 50 people in the audience? Who's the guy who gets to be the last guy just before the big guy gets on stage? They're all fighting with one another. They were in Jesus' day, too. Who gets to sit the closest to Jesus at the banquet? Jesus said, the way the culture operates is wrong. It's not the first, it's the last. Hughes also says, not only is it countercultural, it's counter nature. Our pride, our pride just won't let us do this. Our pride, our stubborn human pride just absolutely refuses to be last. We're okay with being 10 out of 12, but we don't want to be last. We don't want to be the servant of all. We're willing to be the servant of nine as long as two others are our servants. But we don't want to be the bottom guy. We don't want to be the one who is the servant of all. This is counter our nature. That's why this is the transformational work of the gospel. The disciples can't do this yet. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has not yet come into them. But once the Holy Spirit has entered and we see the light of the gospel, we see the glorious truth of Christ, it changes 
We're no longer cultural people. We become anti-cultural. We live different than the world lives. We never argue about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. We sing, brother, let me be your servant. And of course, as I referred to this morning, Jesus is going to demonstrate this, isn't he, up in the upper room? Them prideful, arrogant disciples, there's not one of them, not even number 12. Nobody's going to admit to being the last guy on the totem pole. Nobody's going to admit to needing to take that basin and that towel. So Jesus himself does so. But secondly, I want you to note his actions. He tells them, verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, he does something that at first we go, what's he doing, right? You know, imagine being there that day. You got the 12, the argument that's occurred. Now, what does Jesus do? And he took a child. I so much wanted to just do this, but I I was afraid I was going to get a bad negative response from some kid, and that wasn't going to work out so good, right? He just took a child, okay, set him in the midst of the 12. You wonder, okay, he set him there. You wonder, how long did he leave the kid standing there? It doesn't tell us, but he set him there. And then Mark is the only one of the gospel writers adds and he took him in his arms what is going on well I'll ask you a question I don't expect you to raise your hands or shout out because you might be wrong here's the question what language did Jesus speak In his common, ordinary carrying on of life, what language does he speak? Do you know? It's Aramaic. Guess what interesting little thing happens with the word for child? In the Aramaic, the word for child and the word for servant are the same. He took a child. He took a servant. Now, you, you don't, don't think of the, he took the child, it's a child. But you see, in their minds, that child is just there to serve. The child's the lowest thing on the totem pole in their way of thinking. And he embraces the child. He wraps his arms around the servant, the least of them. What was the child for? Well, go get my slippers. Child, go get my pipe. Child, go make the meal. Child, go wash the dishes. Child, 
do this, child, do that, child, take out the garbage, child, child, child. What was the child but a servant? Do you get anything from a child? I mean, do you get any notoriety? Do you get any praise? Do you get any accolades? Do, do children heap upon you great rewards? Do children make you wealthy? Now, a child does nothing to enhance those sorts of things as far as your status. By Jesus' action of embracing the child, he is embracing the one who has the servant heart. He took a child, put him in the midst, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Child. Now the one who serves. The one who is the servant of all. The one who is the last. The one who receives one of my people. One of my children. Don't think now in terms of age. Don't think of parent-child. Think in terms of being a child of the Father. Think of it in terms of spirituality. This is what Jesus is taking them. Whoever receives this child, whoever embraces this child, even though this child can offer you nothing, in terms of that argument you are having on the road about who is the greatest, the child can't crown you. The child can't give you your gold jewelry. The child can't give you your status. But I tell you, whoever embraces one of my servants embraces me. James, <coughs> in writing in James chapter 2, 1 through 4, says, scolded a little bit the people in, in his letter, because what would happen oftentimes in their worship services, there would be this rich man who would come in and they'd all scatter and give him the seat of honor. But when the poor man came in, they'd shove him in the back corner. Say, here, you, you sit back there. There's so much our tendency. We're willing to serve those who benefit us. We're willing to serve those from whom we can get something. We're willing to serve those who, who might pat our wallet. We're willing to serve those who, who might praise us in public. We might serve those who, who have a, a, the ability to increase our status amongst others. But Jesus is saying that's not who you ought to be serving. We ought to be serving the child. The servant.
And notice what Jesus confirms. Whoever receives me, receives not just me, but him who sent me. This becomes sort of the core of what Christian life, what Christian living is really all about. Take this. Apply it to church life. Take this. Apply it to family life. Take this, apply it to marriage. Take this and apply it to a friendship. We, as God's people, are here to serve, not to be served. We're not here so other people do the dirty work. But we keep our hands clean. We are here to wash feet. This is the point Jesus is making. By his example, by his teaching, by his confrontation of them, by taking this little child. Jesus is not saying, ah, whoever loves children, man, you're in the kingdom. No. It's not what he's saying. Whoever receives them in my name as one of mine. In that you do it unto the least of these of mine, you do it unto me. You want to serve Christ? Then find somebody you don't think deserves to be served and serve them. So I end with three questions. Do we serve or do you serve? You see ways in your life that you're committed to that kind of service. Not service for notoriety, not service for fame, not service to get your name on the back of a bulletin. You're just out there serving. Do you serve? Are you willing to serve? Maybe it's, I just don't know, I just don't know what to do. I, I want to, I desire to, I, I want to do exactly what Jesus is saying here. But I just don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of clueless about this. Maybe it's all new to you. Maybe it's strange, maybe it's different. Maybe light bulbs are going on and going, oh my. I've had all these years and I haven't done anything, but, but now I don't know what to do. I'm so used to being served, I, I don't have really the understanding of what it means to serve. Do you look for ways? Do you keep your eyes open? Let me just be real practical. Real practical. How many of you pay a visit, send a card to any one of the shut-ins 
See, there's nothing gained by going there. It's not like you get, you know, some notoriety. A couple of these folks, they won't even know you've been there. But you see, that's not the point. The point is that this doesn't get clicked off in somebody's file. It's not like you're racking up points to, to, to earn a merit badge. You just want to serve. How about those who don't even remember who they are anymore? Do you serve them? See, that, this, see are, the disciples are arguing who's the greatest. Jesus is saying, are you visiting them? Oh, my life is so busy. Oh, most of that stuff you can do without. Most of that stuff that you're so busy with is just about making a name for yourself. It's not about serving. Do you even take the time to just send a card? Do you take an hour a month to volunteer for some Christian organization in our community. Nope, don't have time to do that. Too busy building my kingdom. I think this passage is coming at us and saying, eh, it's not about who's the greatest. It's about who's serving. Quietly. Unknown. Behind the scenes. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And I, as I seek to be an imitator of Christ, need to be that same kind of servant. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure the disciples were choking a little hard on this one. They're swallowing a lot of pride and a lot of crow. Lord, sometimes we have to do that too. We've got to swallow our sinful pride, put it aside, in order that we might be like Christ that we might be like your son. Father, I pray that you'll give us hearts to follow the king with deeds of love and mercy. For it's in that way that the battle is won. It's not with swords loud clashing. It's not with television cameras rolling. It's with deeds of love and mercy. Father, may we be faithful to Christ even as he has faithful to us. In his name we pray. God's people say, amen.